Grow CFO is where finance leaders grow together. Join thousands of like-minded professionals using Grow CFO to access the combined knowledge and experience of the finance leader community. You can join us today at growcfo.net. Hello and welcome to the Grow CFO show. I'm your host, Kevin Appleby, and today we're going to talk about how CFOs can help their procurement teams avoid anchor bias. And joining us is Edmund Zagorin from Arkestro, where Edmund is the Chief Strategy Officer. Edmund, welcome to the Grow CFO Show. Thanks, Kevin. Great to be here. Edmund, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, my background is a combination of procurement, strategic sourcing, and data science and machine learning. So I actually got into doing uh, procurement analytics work from looking at uh, kind of data science for spend analysis, looking at how organizations spend their money, what categories and which suppliers, and then using that data to help teams that are running RFPs, RFQs, or strategic negotiations, often comparing offers from many suppliers on many different parameters using data. And that was really where I experienced some of the, really just the pain and tedium of making lots and lots of pivot tables. And that's what a lot of the analysis work is. And that experience was kind of an opportunity and motivation to get started with the technology that now powers Orchestra. Yeah. And I've been there and got the t-shirt around those pivot tables. And back in my past, I've been involved in consulting assignments that have often been taking costs out of organizations. One of those things, quite often we've done a procurement review and started digging through where the spend was and with who over maybe the last 12 or 24 months. And you go into that organization, you discover they've got six different cell phone contracts with six different suppliers. And you think, hang on a minute, you could consolidate this into one contract. You could take a volume discount per Possibly you could have a greatly strengthened negotiating position and just putting those sorts of things forward to the client. But the analysis you've got to go through with all those pivot tables and ranking people in order of how much you spend with them and grouping things together into type of spend, there's a lot of work goes into that. Well, and not even that. Once you've made the decision, and let's take your example of consolidating cell phone contract providers the actual process of doing that consolidation, like executing that, often involves getting data from suppliers, comparing that data at scale to figure out how the consolidation should happen, who the ultimate contract should be with, if it should be a consolidation to one or to two, if there's segmentation for geography, if there's a reason to carve out an exception to the consolidation because of certain types of calls, like you get emergency calls, you get calls on the ocean. It really depends on the business, right? And so I think that one of the things that people have struggled with, especially finance and procurement teams with their business stakeholders, is coming in with a playbook that's kind of a one-size-fits-all mentality. And then how kind of fighting the fight with a stakeholder says, ah, our business is completely unique. <laughs> like our setup is completely bespoke. We require this many different suppliers. We require paying more uh, in some cases than 
benchmarks might suggest. And they might actually be right about certain cases. And that's the thing. It really involves a lot of collaboration with the business. And so whenever I'm working with procurement and finance teams, I always say, hey, is there a way to use data to find out where the stakeholder has got something? It has got really good signal on how the ultimate outcome of that type of activity, a consolidation or a diversification needs to look? How can we use data to figure out what's signal and what's noise and really get the best outcome for all parties involved, including the suppliers, by the way? Mm, Yeah. So what exactly does Orchestro do? So what Orchestro does, we're an embedded platform. So we live inside systems like SAP, Oracle, Coupa, Reba, and we have a machine learning simulation layer that simulates procurement processes before they begin. And then we propose desired outcomes to suppliers. We also monitor procurement activities and opportunities and propose procurement activities to category managers, and even in some cases to stakeholders and business owners. So our platform is called a predictive procurement orchestration platform. And we generate real-time recommendations that help procurement teams take the next best step and help suppliers avoid the hassle of creating quotes manually. That's powerful. But the real reason we're having this conversation today, we were talking about the interface between CFOs and procurement teams, and specifically talking about avoiding anchor bias. So what is anchor bias? So anchor bias is this really interesting phenomenon in the psychology of pricing and commercial dealings, where the first price that we see tends to anchor our expectations about how much something costs. And you see anchor bias all over the place. Like when you go shopping and you see prices that end in nine, $9.99. The reason that prices end in nine actually has to do with the anchor bias. Even though it's only one penny different than $10, consumers repeatedly report uh, feeling that the $9.99 price is significantly cheaper because we anchor on the nine number instead of the 10. And our brain goes, yep, that's cheaper, even though it's only a penny difference. Yeah, and I've looked at that a lot, saying any pricing our premium membership number in gross CFO. And we've had those debates that say, well, do we go in at 649 or do we go in at 699? And the common understanding is, well, but in most people's minds, 649, 699 are the same price, but they're both cheaper than 700. Yeah. It's a strange thing. Significantly, right? Like not just a little bit, but like it's a significant affective and emotional experience of a price that causes people to make buying decisions different than what they otherwise would have. So anchor bias is the first price suggested. So we're talking about negotiation. How does that first price suggested then affect the rest of the way the negotiation goes? So let's think about uh, business-to-business transactions just for a moment, kind of holistically. There are, in procurement, there are many different kinds of deals that you can do, and of course, many different processes that you can use. I want to take three as examples to show kind of how the anchor bias can play a role. One is strategic sourcing. You are trying to establish a contract price for one or many items 
falling under a contract that could be with one or actually multiple suppliers. In that case, you're frequently using a request for proposals or request for quote, especially if it's a significant amount of money. And then potentially you might even go multiple rounds. You might negotiate on specific items or business terms, and then you move through that process to get a deal done. The second one I want to talk about is spot buying or where something comes up that's unanticipated. It needs to be done relatively quickly. The business owner might have a very strong preference for a specific supplier partner. Maybe they're already pretty far down the road. And that transaction, rather than ending in a contract, might just end in a purchase order, invoice, and then exchange of money for services or material. The last one I want to talk about is a slight hybrid of the two. And this is a formulary sourcing process where the outcome is the creation of a catalog. And in this case, you might be constructing a catalog from multiple suppliers. Maybe you're actually asking an aggregator to put a catalog together for you, a punch out or something that can go into your e-procurement system. And this is going to create an experience for your end users in the business to essentially shop on their own through a direct e-commerce channel. And you in procurement and finance are curating that. Now, in all three of these examples, the supplier is typically the one that proposes the pricing first. And that is where anchor bias comes from. So when the supplier has the opportunity to put down the first offer, they're really doing three things. One, they are putting in the heads of everyone involved in the negotiation or the commercial deal, some starting point. And then they're giving procurement and finance the opportunity to come down some incremental portion from that. Of course, depending on market conditions, the price could in some cases go up, but usually the sales team is going to anchor high and then create some incentives and levers to have their counterparty or their customer negotiate them down in certain ways and have some built-in wiggle room to give up concessions in order to achieve a deal on their time frame and great sales teams execute deals on a time frame and that i think is really part of how anchoring works in the commercial processes between different enterprises the one tool that procurement and finance teams often use especially if it's a big piece of equipment or it's a custom manufacturing run is they will have cost models. And so this could be a teardown of a bill of materials or a product where each material or the piece rate of labor or the cost of shipping are brought together to create some idea of how much the supplier has to pay to produce the item and then factoring in some margin on top of that. Now, what I've always found interesting about these so-called should cost models or should be cost models is that they're typically one side of the table models. In other words, they're used by the procurement and finance team potentially to set targets or to measure success associated with the supplier negotiation, but they typically aren't shown to the supplier. In other words, they play a role in psychologically setting the expectation on the procurement side of the table, but the supplier is still coming in and saying, here's where we're going to start. Here's our initial offer. Give us some feedback. 
and maybe we'll go through one or two rounds of negotiation to get to a final offer. And just as one piece of data on this, there's a 2007 book called The Essentials of Negotiation by Lewicki, Berry, and Saunders that aggregates the past few decades of individual studies that have been done on the role of first offers in negotiations. There's a classic study in 2001 done by Galinsky and Musweiler that you can find on the internet. And this study estimated that first offers, like just who goes first in a negotiation, may account for up to 50% of the price variance between negotiation participants that are negotiating over identical items with identical contexts. And so that's a dramatic impact on cost, up to 50% of the variance in price. And so I think that this has been studied time and time again, but the value of having your procurement and finance team have a game plan for avoiding anchor bias has a clear business impact and in some cases, material consequences on margin improvement. Totally, totally get that. I'm really surprised that there's as big a difference as you've mentioned, depending who goes in first with the price, whether it's the buyer or the seller. So thinking further, if you're going to avoid getting into that anchor bias trap, is it predictive models that are the way in? So we think that predictive models are one of the effective ways that teams can really avoid having their suppliers trap them with anchor bias. And if you look at the past 20 years, these sales teams are using machine learning and predictive models to create the CPQ systems that are being used in many industries have predictive models baked into them. And commercial teams are often using this technology, these predictive models, to generate not quoted offers with the expectation of achieving some amount of margin, but actually understanding the psychology of the buyer from analyzing their previous dealings with them at scale. And so what you've seen is there's an asymmetry in the amount of technology and the amount of data on each side of the table. Back in the day with should cost and should be cost modeling, you had procurement with a significant amount of data on their side. But what's happened is that that has become much more inside of the sales team and on the top line revenue side of the table with the investment in technology that we've seen. And so we think that predictive models can enable procurement and finance teams that are doing these negotiations to actually set the context and control the flow of the negotiation with their suppliers more clearly. And we think the predictive models are a tremendous asset in enabling that that outcome. Is there something here though, Edmund, that turns a lot of things into a commodity? Is the model from the buyer's perspective will possibly be looking at cost. The model from the supplier's point of view may well be looking at value add to the customer. Cost and value aren't necessarily the same two things at all. And a supplier would be looking to differentiate by the amount of value they add, whereas the buyer might be looking at purely down to how can we get this thing at the lowest cost. Well, and Kevin, I think you make a very good point about how it's traditionally been done. And I think that 
those traditional approaches actually run into a fundamental difference in paradigm and perspective, depending on if you're the procurement team or the supplier. What's interesting is that new predictive models powered by artificial intelligence actually don't use either value or cost as their fundamental framework. They use a methodology known as behavioral analysis, which looks at not the items themselves or their change relative to market indices or benchmarks. They actually look at the relationship. So the supplier relationship, it turns out to be that this critical missing element in understanding the evolution of these prices over time. And a few years ago, there was this breakthrough in behavioral pricing, largely led by some of the AI scientists at Uber, because Uber had this really significant challenge. They had to generate prices in their app for all of these things, uh, routes between point A and point B, that no one had any idea how much they would cost. And so they actually significantly invested in this kind of foundational technology around behavioral analysis and the use of behavioral analysis and price prediction. And that technology was an inspiration for our Castro to say, is there a way to apply behavioral analysis to create predictive pricing that helps two parties come to an agreed upon best and final negotiated settlement to settle a transaction much, much faster rather than going back and forth and back and forth. And where that back and forth is typically a back and forth that begins with the anchor price that's set by the supplier. Right. Yeah. So I can get this. Predictive models are really going to make a difference because the procurement team has an intelligently suggested price. That's powerful. So they're in a stronger negotiating position. So we've talked a lot about procurement folk. So CFO, finance team, where do they come into this? So I think that putting the CFO hat on for a second, I think that there are three kind of intrinsic challenges in the relationship between procurement and finance. One is that procurement teams need to bring cost savings results to finance for them to be recognized and validated. And there are all kinds of reasons, especially in manufacturing, why finance either treats procurement's work or contribution with some amount of skepticism, or why there are tailwinds like inflation or the inability to get supply in certain items that make procurement have a lot of accountability, but not a whole lot of control. And that dynamic, I think, can frustrate the relationship between procurement and finance on both sides, where procurement comes in and says, hey, we avoided this amount of cost. And finance goes, yeah, my price is higher than it was last year. So I'm not going to give you credit for avoiding that cost, even though you worked very hard to help the company. So I think that that's really procurement and finance, really speaking the same KPI language and the work that the dynamic there and the work that can get done. The second thing is that the traditional relationship is finance says we need to take, you know, 50, 80 million out of the business. Procurement help me do that. And procurement off working with the service provider comes with a list of opportunities and says, okay, we're going to go after some number or subset of these opportunities and deliver often through strategic sourcing, supplier negotiations, and so on. And that process is at least 
from what I've seen and from my colleagues who are chief procurement officers or chief supply chain officers, that process is a linear process. It takes a really long time to go stepwise between the different stages. And it's challenging for the CFOs because it is very difficult to predict when those savings will show up in the P&L. And if you work in finance, have it introducing predictability and repeatability into your processes is very, very important. It's very important for investor stakeholders, board member stakeholders to have that. And so one of the things that we have evangelized is this idea of predictable savings, predictable, sustainable savings, and how predictive models actually fit into that story to not just allow procurement to exceed cost savings targets and create value in other areas for their stakeholders, but to also deliver on those commitments in a predictable, manageable way. The third is really understanding which categories are strategic to the business and where we need different ways of measuring success that aren't just changing the price and where there are financial impacts from total cost of ownership that in many cases will exceed the financial impact of a slightly lower price. And I think that that's really where a lot of procurement and supply chain leaders have been spending time with their CFOs, communicating, hey, we spend a lot of money when we have to ship something via air freight because you know we weren't able to get it onto a truck. If we have to pay a little bit more for a supplier that has a higher on-time and full rate, we're going to save this money on this other part of the P&L and really painting the picture from an integrated business planning standpoint for how all of the operational costs fit together. Yeah, and that you just predicted my next question there. I was thinking about that quality side of the procurement. And now we talk a lot about lean manufacturing techniques, just in time and so on. And part of what you're looking for in a supplier is somebody who's going to give you not just the product, but the level of service of it turning up just when you want it. So you don't have those huge inventory costs. So you don't have the production line stopping because it hasn't turned up. And that really, in a lot of larger manufacturing companies, is the internal tension, usually a productive and hopefully healthy tension between the CFO and the COO or the chief supply chain officer, one of whom is primarily focused on cost. The other is primarily focused on operational performance. You do see the consolidation of those perspectives in metrics like OE or operational efficiency, where people are looking to simultaneously improve performance and reduce costs. Although I will say those metrics frequently are tied in with total cost of ownership rather than just a hard savings on a specific price paid for a unit of measure. And that's the material difference for how that KPI is tracked, how it's reported, and how it affects the business. I think, you know, look, from a quality and performance standpoint, I think you need to reverse engineer your success. Let's first say operationally, how do we want our supply chain to perform? What levels of order fills and on time and full do we want to see? And then reverse engineer the success to get the best deal, the best pricing for the business for that outcome. And I think that having that partnership happen up front is really, really important. This is another area where predictive models can make a huge difference. 
So one of the things that happens when you run an RFP or RFQ, and I've been in this situation before Orchestro as a consultant, is you almost have a stakeholder going, gosh, I hope that this supplier that's not very good gives us a high price so that I don't have to make the tough decision. I don't have to get into that argument about whether or not we should be dramatically reducing our cost in exchange for something I know is going to end up costing more in the long run because of you know poorer performance or less good quality or any number of factors. And so that's where I feel like things do go sideways because if you're a procurement professional and you're getting compensated on cost savings or your bonus or your job performance is tied to that, and a supplier who you know might not be the most high-performing supplier throws in a low offer, all of a sudden, you might get really excited. <laughs> That's actually not good for the health of the relationship between procurement and the CFO. It's not good overall if, for whatever reason, you end up picking that supplier because, again, the company ends up paying for that more in the long run. They don't pay for it up front, but at the end, you know, money's money. You're still paying for uh, lower quality or the air freight, high air freight costs when the supplier doesn't show up. And the problem is, is the way that that cost is allocated. It might be someone else's budget. It might be someone else's purchase order, but it's still like the business is paying those costs. And so that's why total cost of ownership is so critical in having an agreed upon way of keeping score. But there's something even more powerful, which is what if you used a predictive model to determine who your most preferred supplier was before the procurement process even started? In other words, before you even contacted suppliers, what if there was a way to take signal from your purchases and see which people who work in stakeholders, work in the plants, work in the facilities locations, who they're consistently preferring and giving business to? Yes, of course, every once in a while, someone's cousin runs a shop down the street and they might be doing that. But often, if you see it at scale, there's a reason for that. It's because they know they can count on them. They have a trusted relationship. They tend to bias towards reliability. And so if you're able to do that, you predict the cost. And instead of asking the supplier for the quote, you propose your desired outcome to that supplier. And you say, hey, if you accept this, we're going to largely skip the procurement process and we'll give you an accelerated decision on your PO on a specific timeline. That, I would say, you're getting what everyone wants. You're getting what the supplier wants. You're getting what procurement wants. And most importantly, you're getting what the business wants. And procurement really is a service provider to the business. And I think that format, and we call that predictive procurement because it simulates the offers of non-preferred suppliers before the process even begins. In other words, you are making a prediction of what the most desired outcome is at the holistic level, factoring in quality, performance, cost, all of the different factors, but you're doing it before you're asking anyone for a proposal, a quote, or an offer. Wow. My question on that would be, if you're putting together that predictive model, how do you put a value on quality? Well, so I actually want to be a little bit contrarian and a little bit controversial in this, let's be honest, like fairly niche world of like procurement analytics and 
how it all fits together. But the people that I know who are passionate about this love this stuff. I'm obsessed with this. So I want to go even deeper into the weeds just for a second. So the classic paradigm of creating a holistic award scenario that's based on total cost of ownership, it uses the heuristic of a weighted matrix. And in this weighted matrix, you have different things. You have cost, you have quality, you have performance, you may have any number of different weighted criteria in that matrix. And then you have different participants in the selection decision. Each one scores every supplier on the different criteria after they've given an offer. And then there is a second order analysis, which kind of sums and adds all of those different points. And in doing that, you get a number that's a number in my experience. And again, I'm going to be a little bit contrarian here is almost meaningless <laughs> to everyone that's participated in the process because it exists two or three orders of abstraction away from the decision, right? You're summing points that are representing criteria that themselves are like, what does it mean if you assign an 8.5 on cost to a supplier, right? You think their pricing is 8.5 out of 10 good? You know what I mean? Like I've seen these big matrices that have that level of abstraction where it not only is difficult to know precisely what the scores mean, it's actually very difficult to compare them. And so I think that my kind of contrarian thought or proposal for the future has to do with an experience that I had when I was in high school. I'll tell you just a quick little personal story. So when I was in high school and college, I was a debater, competitive debater, and it was on the debate team, very passionate about it. And in debate, they ask one question, which is who did the better debating? I know you're in the UK. So this is not how it works in the UK. In parliamentary debate, they have a different way. They say who made the better arguments, who dressed nicely, who had a persuasive uh, way of communicating in some matrices, you even get points for eye contact, all different kinds of things, right? And I had this experience of doing both kinds of debate. One where you just asked this one question, who did the better debating? And the other where you had a matrix where you said, here are the different criteria. Let's give everyone points for each. And we'll add up all the points and see who got the most points. And one of the things that I saw when I was doing this is that people consistently said that they did not feel that this matrix point system accurately represented their holistic preference or decision of who actually won the debate. And so in the United States, in like the 1980s, people decided that they cared more about competition and that competition was like more motivating for the students that were competing. And they wanted a system that had a higher fidelity to the like who won. So they made this change. And once they made that change, they collected data every year on which debaters won in head-to-head -head matches. And you could actually build a predictive model based off of the judges at a tournament and the different participants and competitors that would say in a head-to-head -head match in tournament bracket, who would win in a specific scenario, who's most likely to win based on who they had debated previously, and then who those teams had debated in their opponent rounds. And so what I think is really interesting is if you look at procurement, procurement has the fundamental same data problem in this decision calculus that 
1970s US and British parliamentary debate had, which is producing a layer of abstraction over the decision that is fundamentally arbitrary and impossible to really represent that authentic decision of like, which supplier is just the best? <laughs> like if you ask most people that are operationally involved with executing a business, they'll tell you this supplier is the best. We have a great relationship with them. They're fun to work with. They show up on time. And if times are tough, they don't jack up the price on us, right? They're willing to work with us and work with our goals and we work with their goals. And I think that what we are moving towards is we're really moving towards a world where customer relationship management, that paradigm, which and that paradigm of like, you know, which customer is like, am I going to win the deal, the conversion funnel, all of that stuff is moving to procurement and finance. And we are going to be much more able to objectively with data answer some of these questions about who is our most preferred supplier. And as long as you know who the most preferred supplier is from a data standpoint, again, being a little bit contrarian here, I don't think it matters why. Because that judgment and preference is holistic, necessarily. Yeah, get that. Talking about there in a debating example about winners and losers, when it comes to the procurement situation, I've always heard it said that leaving a negotiation, both parties should feel as though they've won. You think that's still true? I do. I do think that both parties should feel as though they've won. I think actually that in part, the reason that people use the conventional process of the anchoring bias that involves the supplier making their first proposal, quote, or offer, is that it produces an outcome where often both sides feel that they've won, even if the procurement side of the table has gotten a much worse deal than they would have otherwise. And... I think that as we look at how machine learning and artificial intelligence has the opportunity to change and I think fundamentally improve these processes, we have to be very sensitive to the emotion and the psychology of these interactions, which are ultimately suppliers are our partners, they're trusted partners. Great suppliers can make a business succeed. Terrible suppliers can really create a lot of headache. And it's not just about cost. It's not just about price. And so the last thing that we would want is for an adversarial relationship to develop because of a negotiation where someone felt like they'd given up too much and leave feeling embittered by that experience. I actually think that one of the reasons that the paradigm is changing is because people value their time in such a different way today than they did even 10 years ago. And I think that we've heard from suppliers is that many of them leave the procurement process, even when they do win and get the deal that they want, feeling somewhat embittered by how long it took and how much work it was for them. And so I think like the process costs of the old way of doing things where the supplier has to anchor and do multiple rounds of back and forth, those process costs have gone way, way up the value of the sales team's time has gone way, way up. And so I think that the reason that companies are turning to predictive procurement orchestration is that their suppliers have said, hey, we love your company and we want to be your partner. We just need a fast lane or an easy button to do business with you because this system where we fill out giant Excel spreadsheets and your analysts like 
comb through them looking for opportunities to come back to us. This process is antiquated. It's not a good use of time for either side of the table. And there is a better way. And lots of systems, by the way, like Uber, which settles a transaction between two parties that used to have a much more adversarial relationship, right? Used to get into a cab and that was the beginning of a negotiation, right? Like, are they taking the fastest route? Or are you going to have to pay more than you were expecting, right? Oh, the cab doesn't have a meter. What a disaster, right? Now, both sides are making up prices about how much the trip should cost. But what Uber did is they did something very interesting is they said, not only are we going to have a predictive price, but you're going to be able to agree to that before you get in the car. And that was a totally different way of having a relationship with your taxi driver, as opposed to waiting for the end and potentially getting surprised. And so I think there are great models and examples for how procurement and finance can use these predictive models to improve the relationship and just take some of the friction back and forth and uncertainty out of it. Wow, Edmund, there's a lot there. You've convinced me that predictive modeling in this sort of sophisticated data analytics world is the way forward. But I think some clear messages there. Number one, try and get still for the procurement team to set the anchor price and not the supplier. Number two is get your KPIs right. So I'd always look at the finance team as being the custodians of the KPIs for the business. And I think that total cost of ownership is a really interesting one, or the whole life cost of dealing with a supplier. What are all of the costs, the potential things that could go wrong over the life of this contract? If we don't get a certain level of quality out of this supply, what does it cost the business versus what's just the plain straightforward price times number of units equals equals the cost line? Yeah. So measuring the right things, rewarding the procurement team on the right things, like having a remuneration related KPI that says, okay, we'll give you this bonus depending on how much money you save on price can be really, really counterproductive, can encourage completely the wrong behavior. Wow. There's a lot to take in there. I think uh, anybody listening to this podcast today, probably it's well worth going back in there and giving it a listen second time through because we have covered so, so much ground. Edmund, that was brilliant. Thank you for being this week's guest on the Grow CFO Show. Thank you, Kevin. It was a pleasure chatting. And I always like to get down with people who have been in the procurement trenches. It sounds like you have yourself on a number of occasions. And um, it's a pleasure chatting with you. I appreciate your questions and I appreciate the conversation. Thank you.